You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Welcome to episode 608 of the Sonic Society, the world's largest weekly showcase of modern audio theater. I'm Jack Ward with another quick introduction with my friend and co-host, David Alt. Good morning, everyone. This week we turn back to the age that never quite was with Victoriosity, even greater London, and a peek at Lindsey Graham's series, 1865. And it all begins right here on the Sonic Society. Victoriosity by Chris and Jen Sugden. Episode 1 You're afraid, Inspector. There's no shame in it. I'm not... Where is he? I suppose he'd be here by now. You sure this is the right dock? Don't you worry, land boy. What's on your man's telegram again? Arriving 2am January 16th, stop. Castle docks, stop. Dock number 2120, stop. That's it down there in front of us. But there's no boat in it. There's no boats anywhere. Aye. Nothing but the ocean and the moonlight. About 8,000 docks bobbing around making me queasy because all this land used to be the Seven Estuary. Aye. And the one train back to London Central tonight, which we will miss if he doesn't arrive soon. Aye. And there are any number of people waiting at any point on the way there to steal his invaluable cargo and, if necessary, do in the only protection for said cargo, i.e. me. Aye. Don't look at me like that. There's no shame in it, Fleet. (sighs) Like most people paying any kind of attention, Inspector Archibald Fleet couldn't shake the feeling that something was very, very wrong. Or more likely, that everything was just slightly wrong. The everything in question was London in 1887. Even greater London, to use its proper title, which nobody ever did. An uninterrupted urban plain encompassing the entire lower half of England, and, for complex reasons, only the upper third of the Isle of Wight. It was on the west coast of even greater London, in the 40 miles of the Castle Docklands, built over what used to be open water between what used to be the separate cities of Cardiff and Bristol, that Fleet was waiting for a most important visitor. A visitor of great renown. A visitor who was to solve all of Fleet's problems by replacing them with far worse ones. Everyone feels afraid when they see the ocean at night, and if they don't, they should. I told you, you don't have to stay. Don't you have some... I don't know, fisherman preparation to be doing somewhere. Fear is what lets you know you're alive, Fleet. I'm not afraid. You're shivering. It's two in the morning and we're standing in front of a freezing ocean. How are you not shivering? I don't feel the cold anymore. I don't feel anything anymore. A life on the ocean, that's all I know. A lifetime of regret. Did I ever tell you about Agatha? 
What do you mean, did you ever? We just met about 20 minutes ago. I just wanted you to show me down to the dock. She was beautiful, my Agatha. I didn't deserve her. She didn't deserve to be wedded to a man who was already wedded to the ocean. Look, fisherman. Eyes like sapphires. Very good. And such a beautiful dancer. Lovely. If you know what I mean. Well, I thought I did, but then you said, if you know what I mean. Is he often late, your man? I've no idea. He hasn't been in the country for 20 years. Not a very glamorous mission for a detective, is it? Babysitting a tourist? Dr. Salek is not a tourist, he's a scientist. He's transformed the whole... He built the tower. What tower? The tower. Still a detective with intellect, I assume, and skills. You enjoy making sure people get on the right train so they can get home to their teddy bears and cocoa? Doesn't matter whether I enjoy it. This is what I've been asked to do. Agatha oh. asked me not to be away at sea for so long. We'd get by, she said. But I wanted to earn my way up to captain, and I did. But by then, she was gone. Really, don't let me keep you. Do you know what I regret most, Fleet? Oh, he's late. When well, something's happened to him. What I regret most, Fleet. <sighs> what? What I regret most was losing Agatha. Yes, I think you've made that very clear. And I will really regret having to go back and tell my superiors why I haven't. Fleet, look! Quiet, fisherman, look! Look! Shh! Is that... I... a submarine, just like the one Agatha... No more Agatha! I suppose that's him. Well, let's go then. You really don't have to go. Dr. Salek? Dr. Salek! <gasps> Dr. Salek? Dr. Salek? Are you all right? Yeah. Am I all right? I am standing in the moonlight, breathing God's own air. Air gloriously uncorrupted by the coppery toxicity of 65 matching 900 ampere hour accumulator cells. Good. I'm Inspector Fleet. I'm here to escort you to London Central. Oh, indeed. And who is your nautical companion? Oh, this is... Actually, what did you say your name was? <gasps> oh, no. That's my name. All right, fisherman. Not really, no. Dr. Salik and I have to have a very short conversation somewhere that's not here. So you, Fleet, stay where you are. And Salik, come with me. He's not going anywhere. Why don't you just put the gun down? Why would I put the gun down? Neither of you have one. What is it you want? He wants me. He said already. Doctor, please. Enough. Salik, come with me. No. No? I'm staying here. You're not staying here. You're following me, or I will shoot you both. Then shoot us, you fiend. The inspector and I do not fear death. But all the same... Dr. Salik, you're coming with me if I have to drag you there myself. My God, he's dead. Oh, he's not dead. He'll be fine in a bit. What happened to him? Well, he touched my jacket, you see. You mustn't touch my jacket. Dreadful. Why didn't you simply subdue him by force? What force? He had a gun. He would have shot me before I made it two steps. Oh, it is all right, Inspector. Some men are cowards. I'm not a coward. I just don't want to die. I think that's reasonable. Haven't we a train to catch? What about him? We can tell a local constable to come here and pick him up. 
You'll be unconscious for a while. But aren't you concerned? Someone was here pointing a gun at you and you've only just set foot back in the country. That's what you're here for, is it not? Yes. Yes, it is. Later that morning, 70 miles to the north, another train completed its journey south from Yorkshire, pulling to a stop where the tracks ended, at the magisterial station London Border North, a mile-square rail terminus complex that now formed the heart and principal function of the commercial district previously known as Birmingham. London Border North was a triumph of engineering, no material or indeed human cost having been spared to solve what had come to be known as the two northern problems. First, how to manage the practicalities of mass southward migration into the far wealthier, even greater London. And second, how to extract as much money as possible from the people making the journey. In the end, both problems were solved by chief urban boundary planner Bartholomew Poole, who realised the true potential in forcing thousands of travellers at a time to switch trains and wait for what was, in theory, but not in reality, a predictable period of time, and that, in such an environment, there was no upper limit on the amount of money people will pay for a sandwich. Exiting from the first-class carriage of their train were Clara Entwistle and her mother, Lady Lucretia. Welcome to London. Well, that's nice, isn't it? Being welcomed by a person is nice, dear. To be welcomed by a sign is vulgar. Mother, you can't disagree with being welcomed. <laughs> it's not an option. We are welcome. To London. It's exciting. Look at the size of this station. Don't get excited, dear. It exacerbates your freckles. Oh, that boy selling the Illustrated London News. One moment, Mother. I will not one moment. What need have you for a newspaper? I like to keep up to date with current affairs. You can read my copy of this month's All a Lady Need Know. Disagreement resolved. Now, come along. Our train to Marlebone is leaving imminently, and we have to get through here. Here was border control. A necessary irritation for those travelling into London, the only alternative being the uncrossably dense Midlands forest. A natural-seeming but quite deliberately planted northern border for London, stretching from east to west coast by way of Derbyshire. The forest was quite beautiful, although since it had been populated with some 25,000 wolves to discourage crossings, this was never fully appreciated, including, disappointingly, by the wolves. None of this was designed to prevent travel into London, only to ensure the proper paperwork was done. Names? Clara Entwistle, and this is my mother, Lady Lucretia. Occupations? Occupations? Well, my mother's occupation uh, is lady, I suppose, and I am a journalist. Are you bringing any animals into London? You're a what? No animals. What about those birds? Oh, yes, two birds, please. What do you mean, journalist? Oh, you mean you're keeping a journal. Very ladylike, although I wouldn't call it an occupation. More a pastime or hobby. No, Mother. I've been offered a position at the Morning Chronicler. I thought we were coming to a ball. You were going to catch yourself a husband. I didn't know how to tell you. I was planning on explaining once we got there. Perhaps by putting a note for you in the classifieds. Well... I've never felt so betrayed in all my life. I'm going home immediately. Mother, don't. Come with me. You'll enjoy it. I'm sorry, Clara. I promised your father one thing. Well, actually, I promised him several things, but there was one promise I kept, which was that if something happened to him, I would raise you as he would see fit. And as you have somehow managed to contrive for yourself a salaried job... 
Offence intended. Oh. I have clearly failed. But father didn't know best, mother. That's why he went out sailing in the dead of night and never returned. That was just one of his ways. I know, but it killed him. It's what he would have wanted. To be killed at sea? Or for you to abandon me at London board and all? Oh, both! This is your brother's fault, of course. Encouraging you to educate yourself. The very idea. You used to be so good at cross-stitch. And now it's all hypothetical moral systems this and Kant's categorical imperative that. Why couldn't you just have married a duke, moved to Saxony and died of scarlet fever like your sister? I just want different things. Well, I hope those different things include providing for yourself. They do. <coughs> Mother, don't. Don't look too glum, miss. Your mother was a truly dreadful woman. Anything else I can help you with? Yes. Is there anywhere in the station one can get a stiff drink? Almost everywhere, miss. Welcome to London. Next. A stiff drink and an even stiffer sandwich later, Clara was on the train from London border north towards London Central. Without her mother to distract her, she found herself staring out of the window at the passing city. Some things have to be seen to be believed. Some things can be seen and still not believed. And a few things, when seen, cause whatever belief you had before to be thrown right out of the window. Hurtling through the unbroken urban fabric of even greater London, on a train with no engine and propelled by it was not clear what, Clara was having just such an experience. May I see your ticket, miss? I... but... but the... I said, may I see your ticket, miss? Oh, yes. Sorry. I was just looking out of the... the... the window. Describing the scale and richness of even greater London is a task that has sent many people quite mad. Suffice it to say that what Clara saw from her carriage window was an ocean of homes, shops, offices and public houses, all stitched together with roads and crisscrossed by an untidy lattice of rail tracks, stretching endlessly in every direction. A few minutes more of this, and Clara would be in dire need of an extended rest at Didcot National Insanatorium. It was for this reason, and also because he knew that it would fall to him to take the unfortunate passenger there if it came to that, that the ticket inspector did the following. What are you doing? Why did you close the blind? The reality of it's not good for you, miss, pummels the mind. Trust me, easier just to shut the blinds and read the paper. My word... It's just the size of it. How many people even live here? It's not clear. There's a rather large team of census takers, but by the time they get from one side to the other, everything's out of date. So they just keep roaming around, counting and hoping to run into one another so they can compare notes. And all those railway bridges. I've never seen anything like it. I swear I saw four, no, five, all crossing each other. Oh, yes. Brunel's quite mad. Well, I'll leave you to enjoy your journey, miss. Although, as it's your first time in London, might I recommend you make use of our information carriage? Information carriage? Just through there, miss. The ticket inspector pointed through to carriage B. Inside, suspended in parallel along the length of the ceiling, were twelve thin record cylinders, spinning slowly, and each with its grooved surface painted with the flag of a different nation. Clara found an empty seat, picked up the earpiece resting on a hook on the back of the seat in front of her, and started to listen. Bienvenido, amigo. 
Bienvenido al tren del centro de Londres. Under no circumstances. Wait, damn it! Because of the obvious mortal danger that poses. Now sit back and enjoy this guide to London brought to you by the Salic Energy Company. Welcome to even greater London, the center of the empire. While here, be sure to visit the magnificent, electro-spectacular, beating heart of the city, the Tower. The Tower is responsible for the generation of electricity for the entirety of even greater London and transmitting the energy freely through the clouds and the sky to countless receivers across the city. Why, even the train on which you are traveling is powered by the Tower's electrical beneficence. And with no need for an engine, that means more space on board for social pursuits, whether it be important business conversations for the gentlemen or, for the ladies, a dedicated carriage from which to play whist and protect your delicate senses from important business conversations. All this and more made possible by the Tower, Dr. Salek's gift to the British Empire and testament to man's supremacy over nature. Why not arrange a visit today? And when I say visit, I mean take a pleasant stroll up to, but absolutely no further than the perimeter fencing. Please don't cross the perimeter fencing. Crossing the perimeter fencing is a crime and can lead to any or all of a fine, a letter of condemnation to your employer, being arrested by the Yeoman Warders of the Tower, being shot by the Yeoman Warders of the Tower, and being set upon by the hungry, vicious ravens of the Yeoman Warders of the Tower. Probably give that a miss. Meanwhile, Inspector Fleet had escorted Dr. Salek to his home in Mayfair and returned to Scotland Yard. He made his way down to the detective unit, which was, following budget cuts and an ill-judged wager with the cleaning staff, located in the fourth of the building's sub-basements. Below the detective unit was the fifth sub-basement, the contents of which no one seemed to know. Whatever it was was unspeakably horrid. The door was unlabeled, instead showing at head height a lifelike painting of the smiling face of a young girl, above whom, in friendly, bubbly letters, were the words, Come in. Obviously, no one ever did. Fleet hurried past the light flickering up the stairs from the fifth sub-basement's door and walked into the detective unit's reception area. Good afternoon, Archie. How was Castle? Big, Miss Waverley. Oh, I'd like to go one of these days. Well, there's not much to see unless you like lots of boats. Actually, come to think of it, there were no boats. How do you feel about seeing no boats? Not really one way or the other. Yes, I'm much the same. But it all made me feel rather unwell, in fact. What? The no boats? No, the land. Well, the sort of land. It shifts beneath your feet. A man likes to feel like he's on solid ground, not some viscous mass. I can't help feeling let down by Brunel, really. Oh, you should write to him. Oh, I did when the Docklands first opened. Did he reply? His lawyer did. Something about me being in breach of their polite request that I stop writing to him about his bridges. But you weren't writing about his bridges. That's what I wrote back. I've always liked you, Miss Waverley. And did they reply? Yes, with a signed photographic portrait of Brunel. The nerve. What time does your shift end? Two hours. Ah, just enough time for you to talk to Keller, then. What do you mean, just enough time to talk to Keller? Well, I mean exactly that. I've never liked you, Miss Waverley. Go on. Fleet entered the office of Chief Inspector Keller, sitting behind a very large oak desk on an enormous dark green leather chair and holding a considerably sized fountain pen over a vertiginous stack of papers, a small child of about 11 or 12 years of age looked up at Fleet. Ah, Fleet, come in. Take a seat. Yes, 
Chief Inspector, what's happened to you? <laughs> it's not me, Fleet. It's my eldest son, George. <laughs> the look on your face. Where on earth were you hiding? That's for me to know and my foes 20 years ago in the jungles of the Amazon never to have learned. <laughs> the look on their faces. <laughs> but no, they died with honour. Pleasure to meet you, George. Yes, Inspector. Georgie's here on Bring Your Son to Work Day. Doesn't make the least sense to me. I mean, he's got a job of his own, don't you, George? Yes, Father. He's a junior engineer in Brunel's 14th Engineering Division. He's building a twin-track rail tunnel to the Isle of Wight, aren't you, George? Yes, Father. Oh, very impressive. Not by himself, of course. No. He's got a team of labourers. Yes. They don't just hand him a shovel and say, have at it, boy. No. I mean, they do to the other boys, but they're the labourers. That's exactly what they hand and say to those boys, respectively. Yes. I mean, unless it's not a shovel they need, but rather a pick or a rake of some kind. I don't know. I'm not a labourer. George, do your boys use rakes? No, Father. Mostly just shovels. You see, Fleet, that's leadership. Now, George, run along and play stick and hoop with Miss Waverley for a while. Fleet and I have a sensitive case to discuss. Yes, Father. And remember, George, what's the one kind of ship that can never sink? Friendship, Daddy? No, George. The phalanx-class warships that defend the east coast of London from Prussian aggressors. Because if they do sink, we're all dead. Run along now. Nice boy. Yes, he is. But a few years working under Brunel will sort that out. So, what about Salak? Safely delivered to his residence in Mayfair. Equipment already there when we arrived. He sent it separately, apparently with the idea of using himself as a decoy. Did it work? Well, there's someone in the cells at Castle Docks with probably the worst headache I can imagine, so... Yes? Good. Have the report on my desk in an hour. We'll have to make all the copies by hand. The triplicator's broken. Well, that'll take hours. Can't we do the copies when it's fixed? It's not going to be fixed, Fleet. They're going to send us one of those new quadruplicators. You know what those maniacs are working on now, don't you? A quintuplicator. I've lived too long. Why don't I bring you the report, and when the machine arrives, of however many plickets... Just write the damn copies, Fleet! Only one time I've broken that rule in 33 years as a police officer. Led to the death of three good men. So... I don't like to talk about it. It's fine, I don't want to... Fly fishing, if you must know. Right. Never again. Never again. I take it they drowned? If only, Fleet! What I would have given for them to have drowned. Not in place of them being alive, obviously. No. No. That would be monstrous. Of course. I mean, instead of what happened to them. God rest their poor, shattered souls. Chief Inspector, yesterday before I went off to Castle to collect Salik, who was that leaving your office? I don't think I've seen him before. That's Whitlock, the new Chief Yeoman Warder of the Tower. I'm surprised you haven't run into him yet. You spend a bit of time around the Tower, don't you? I try not to. Beefeaters give me the creeps. The Yeoman Warders are our partners in civil protection fleet, so it's important to remain, you know, civil. That's why I met with Whitlock and ended up listening to him tell his damned adventure stories for an hour. The braggart! If you've ever seen a goat, he's wrestled ten lines before breakfast. Simultaneously or in sequence? Do you know I didn't think to ask? For some reason it wasn't at the forefront of my mind. Why would that be? Oh yes, because he's also told me they've expanded their operating radius. Again? Yes, again, fleet. They've received approval from the Home Secretary yesterday. Now they're the only investigatory force operating within a full one-mile radius of the tower. I understand the need for precaution, but still... Did they give a reason? The warders don't give reasons to us, Fleet. Anyway, that's the way the Home Secretary likes it, in his infinite wisdom, so that's the way it's... Oh, for God. Yes? A Dr. Salak to see you, sir. Salak? What the devil is he doing here? I'll go write up that report, then. Fleet, if you leave this room, I will skin you. All right, then. You'd better send him in, Miss Waverley. Fleet, what do you suppose the odds are of this being Salak personally delivering a thank you gift basket? Poor, sir. Indeed, Fleet. Indeed. There was a saying in even greater London which ran, To get ahead, get a bell.
Many people assumed that it referred to the fairly recent craze for attaching a small bell to the handle of your bicycle in order to signal to those ahead of you that you wished to overtake them. These people were wrong, and would have done well to purchase a copy of Miscellany of Popular and Less Popular Aphorisms by the beloved writer, social commentator, and bon vivant Michael Monkfish. Not least because he really could have done with the money. No, the phrase, to get ahead, get a bell, in fact referred to the ubiquitous bell family, some of the most influential men and women in even greater London. Everyone who was anyone was in some way connected to a bell, whether by friendship, employment, or more likely just meeting by chance at one of Michael Monkfish's imprudently luxurious champagne shindigs. Into the office of Augusta Bell, editor of the Morning Chronicler, walked Clara Entwistle. Miss Entwistle, come in, come in. So, you're my new secretary. Splendid. Take this down. To my brother Julius. Birthday felicitations. Regards, Augusta. Feel free to edit out anywhere I went overboard on the feelings. No, there seems to have been some sort of error. I thought I was accepted for a job as a journalist. Oh, dear. Well, I'm sorry to have wasted your time, but you've been misinformed. I'm afraid we don't have any vacancies at present for reporters, but I'll keep your name on file and... What now? Ah, Jenkins, what do you want? Yes, a new crime reporter, lovely chap. Yes. Yes. What do you mean, stabbed? Well, yes, no, obviously I know what... Well, no, Jenkins, don't be absurd. I'm sure the blood's not everywhere. Is it in Spain, Jenkins? Is the blood halfway up Ben Nevis? No. Then get a hold of yourself. Well, then get a towel first. Well, then a curtain. I don't know. I'll have to think of everything. Well, Miss Entwistle, it appears we have an opening after all. How does crime take your fancy? Writing about it, obviously, not committing it. Although a healthy disregard for police rules about who is and is not allowed to attend a crime scene and who can and cannot remove bits of evidence might come in handy. Is it safe? <laughs> Depends what you mean by safe. Can I promise you that your loved ones won't be kidnapped, garroted, buried in shallow graves, their fingers chopped off and delivered to you in an envelope marked fragile, and to top it all off with insufficient postage? No. But what guarantees are there that that wouldn't happen as a matter of course? That actual scenario or... Will your job take you to some of the most dangerous neighbourhoods? Of course. Will you get shot in the face and your body sold on for medical experimentation? Who can say? Again, I feel like these are alarmingly specific examples. The point is that you're doing a public service, and since... Reading about crime is the nation's second favourite pastime after committing it. I think you'll find it pretty steady work. But uh, no, no. It's quite all right, Miss Entwistle. It's not for everyone. Not everyone has what it takes. Not everyone has l'esprit du stylo. I just took you for... Ah, uh, never mind. Took me for what? A journalist. I'll do it. Excellent. Welcome aboard and all that. Here's an advance on your wages and the key to your new lodgings. Thank you, Miss Bell. You won't regret this. I'm not the regretting type, Miss Enwistle. But your time is now my paper's time and you're wasting it sitting in my office. Go find me some news. Meanwhile, in a far nicer part of the city than Clara's new lodgings, Fleet entered the residence of Dr Salick. Salick's house was in one of a very small number of neighbourhoods in even greater London, where the residents had sufficient wealth, and therefore importance, to keep away the worst effects of the rapidly expanding city. Whether it be the crowds, the trains screaming along viaducts overhead, 
or the network of public address systems playing out every morning and evening, a live address to the city by the unholy mixture of flesh and machine that most people still agreed was, on balance, Queen Victoria. Here in Mayfair, you could almost forget the tower had ever been built at all, except if you looked in any direction other than directly away from it. Inside Salik's home, Fleet was studying the crime scene. Nice place you have here. Oh, thank you, Inspector. Uh, please excuse the dust. It has been a long time since I last visited. Don't take this the wrong way, but I'm surprised you haven't been robbed before. I mean, there's chandeliers in this room alone. The tapestries hanging over the staircases. And is that a suit of armour I can see through there? A gift from the Prussian ambassador. Uh, before all the recent unpleasantness, of course. Yes. But you have been robbed, correct? That is what I've been telling you. Well, I only ask because your reception area here appears to be full of... Let's see, 30 boxes of highly valuable scientific equipment. Oh, trinkets! All of this can be acquired with money. And in that sense, it has no value at all. So what has actually been stolen? My work, Inspector! My work! The culmination of a lifetime of discovery! A most wonderful set of insights assembled in my mind over many years and in many cities. Nothing I have ever done before comes close to it. It is... Your work. Exactly. I see. So, what's been stolen exactly? I've told you. It's just, if there's a physical item, it's going to make my job a lot easier. Of course. It's my notebook. Ah, right. Good. Mental assemblies are tricky. Notebooks are more the kind of thing I can work with. Now, which box was it in? Are you mad? Something so valuable is always on my person. I keep it in my inside the jacket pocket. Here. The same jacket you were wearing this morning? Yes. I thought your jacket electrocuted people. Only when I'm travelling, Inspector. I deactivate it when I'm at home. Otherwise it wouldn't be a lot of fun for Mr. Leopold now, would it? Mr. Leopold being... My cat, Inspector. I see. He's possibly the only being on this earth that truly understands me. And there's so much I don't understand about him. Right. Could you have lost the notebook on the way here, on the train, perhaps? Impossible! I was skimming a few pages as I walked through the door. Then I carefully replaced it in my pocket. And when did you discover it was gone? One hour later. And who else has been here? No one. I have been by myself. I see. And when did you open the window? Which window? That window. That window is closed. Yes, but it's been opened. Look, the runners are clean of dust from where it's been lifted, and the dust is disturbed on the floor. What are you saying, Inspector? Well, if you didn't open the window and you didn't take off the jacket, I'd say you've been pickpocketed. In my own home? Without me noticing they're entering or leaving and with no one else present? Surely not. Dr. Salik. When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be... A ghost! No, Doctor. No. Oh. Very well, Inspector. Let us say you are correct. How will you proceed? A thief of this skill won't be easy to find. Let me make some inquiries. Make them quickly, Inspector. There is more than you know at stake. Fleet worked through the day and long into the night but he could find no one who knew anything about Salik's notebook, or indeed a thief with the kind of skill required to pickpocket a man in his own home. Exhausted, he returned home and collapsed into bed, 
where he fell into a deep, revitalizing sleep, lasting precisely 36 seconds. Inspector? Inspector Fleet, open up, please. Oh, of course. I'm coming. Yes? Inspector Fleet? Yes. Clara Entwistle, journalist, morning chronicler. And you are? Inspector Fleet. Sorry, I'm nervous. I'm Clara Entwistle, journalist... Can I help you, Miss Entwistle? Only it's extremely late, or early, or whatever the hell half past three in the morning is. Yes, it's just... What on earth are you even doing out at this hour? It's not at all safe for you. It's fine, really. I had to come and find you. It's about Dr Salik. He's dead. What? How? Well, someone's killed him, I think. But... Specifically? A terrible series of blows to the head and body. But less specifically? A fight at a pub? There we go. He seems to have been involved in a fight at a pub. And you know this because... My birds woke me up in the middle of the night. I looked out of the window and saw him in the street. I went right to him. And? Well, he was already dead. So I summoned a nearby constable. He's there now. And I offered to come and find you. The constable knew I was on Salak's case. What case? The theft of Salak's notebook. No. No, we didn't know anything about that. Well, then why on earth have you come for me? Well, Salik asked us to. What? You said he was dead before you got there. He was, but he was holding a slip of paper. He must have written on it in his last moments. What did it say? Get Fleet. Of course it did. That episode of Victoriosity featured Tom Crowley as Inspector Fleet. Leila Khatib as Clara Entwistle, and Peter Ray as the narrator, with Gemma Arrowsmith as Augusta Bell, Richard Soames as Dr. Salik, and Christian Flint as the fisherman. Chris Sugden was Chief Inspector Keller, Jackie Smithwood was Lady Lucretia, Molly Beth Morosa was Miss Waverley, and the ticket inspector was played by George McLean. With additional voices by Philip Cotterill, Wayne T. Brown, Ida Bagliff Kenaway, Martha Zumak, Daniel D. Jordan, and Anna Armas Romero. Victoriosity was written by Chris and Jen Sugden, directed by Nathan Peter Grassi, and produced by Dominic Hargreaves. Original music was created by John Owen. The program was recorded at Shank Studios, and the production manager was Castle Docks Harbourmaster Fiona Sinclair. I might change out of my dressing gown first, if it's all the same to you. Oh, yes, of course. Sorry, I'm nervous. I'm Clara. Clara Entwistle. Did I mention that before? Yes, you did. It's just that it's important that you know who I am. Yes, I know. It's early morning, April 15th, 1865. The President of the United States has just died after being shot in the back of the head by an assassin. Washington City is in turmoil. Civil war just barely ended, and now, now the moral compass of the nation is dead. Amidst the chaos, the grief, and the uncertainty, one man is determined to steer the country towards justice. This is the story of Edwin M. Stanton, President Lincoln's Secretary of War. 1865 is a new historical political thriller set in the fraught period immediately following President Lincoln's death, an era of monumental events, an end to civil war, a beginning of reconstruction, the first assassination of an American president, and the first impeachment. Throughout it all, Edwin Stanton is resolute. A lifelong abolitionist, he is determined to protect Lincoln's legacy and bring his assassin to justice. 
But the task is difficult and the means rough. Stanton will have to deceive and manipulate his friends, cajole and flatter his enemies. He will be forced to protect the guilty and persecute the innocent. He will stop at nothing, but the moral gravity of his actions and his own secrets might consume him. You are about to hear a preview of 1865, in which Edwin Stanton first arrives after hearing the news of the terrible events at Ford's Theater. You can listen to new weekly episodes of 1865 exclusively on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com 1865 and use promo code 1865. You'll also find a link in the episode notes. Major Eckert, get these people off the streets now. The crowd is growing by the minute, sir. Many of them are armed. Our men are struggling to keep them at bay. Our men have weapons too, do they not? Of course, Then they should use them. On the crowd, sir? No, no, on the crowd. For God's sake, if they refuse to disperse voluntarily, fire warning shots into the air. Yes, sir. Whoever these assassins are, I don't want them to be able to blend in with the crowd. So for God's sake, make certain they clear those streets. You heard him, Captain. On the double. Yes, sir. I ordered your things moved here from the War Department. I've prepared an office for you in the parlor. Mr. Wells is waiting for you there. I'll be with him in a minute. Where is the First Lady? She refuses to leave the President's side. Would you like to see him, sir? No, 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 not now. Send for Robert Lincoln. Have him escort the First Lady back to the White House. It's done, sir. Our men are trying to locate him, sir. They'll bring him here straight away. How is Secretary Seward? How do you think? Will he survive? I've just come from Seward's house. The doctor's do- doing everything. <laughs> <laughs> Are you all right? I'm fine. Would you like a moment? I said I'm fine. <clears throat> Where's the vice president? Marsh McPhail's men are with him now, standing guard outside his hotel room. Sir, there's something you should know. We believe he may have been a target as well. Johnson? Multiple witnesses confirm. There was a suspicious man outside his hotel asking for the vice president. When? Half past ten. Same time as the attacks on Lincoln and Seward. Do we have this man in custody? No, sir. He disappeared. They say he got spooked and ran off into the night. Oh, for God's sake. What are your orders, sir? Send this telegram immediately. We need to put the generals on alert. The telegraph lines are down, sir. The wires must have shorted. How long have they been out? Just before half past ten. Uh, they didn't short, Major. They were cut. Move all military personnel to the perimeter of the city. The rebels could be advancing on the capital as we speak. Send riders in all directions and put all forts on alert. If the rebels are coming, I want to be ready. And get the telegraph up and running right away. Yes, sir. Major, wait. Did you speak to the vice president tonight? For a moment. How drunk is he? He's not well. Whatever happens, do not let the vice president leave his residence. As far as I'm concerned, till we secure the streets, his hotel room is the White House. And Major. Yes, sir. Which way is the parlor? Mr. Stanton. Secretary Wells. I'm sorry to keep you waiting. How is Secretary Seward? Will he recover? It's unclear at the moment. God have mercy. He's in good hands, Mr. Wells. Have you seen the president? No. I have. He will not survive his wounds. I'm no doctor, but I can tell you that for certain. I assumed as much. What was he thinking, going to a theater of all places? I believe he thought it would do the people some good to see him out in public. He had no business being in a place like that. Yes, well... I spoke to him just this morning. We we were arguing about something. I don't even remember what, and I... 
I stormed out in a house. Mr. Secretary. The thought of that being his last memory of me is unbearable. Mr. Secretary, there is much to be done. Of course, of course. Have we captured the man yet? The men, you mean? I'm hearing Booth's the lone gunman. It's impossible he acted alone. Secretary Seward and President Lincoln were attacked at the exact same time. God in heaven. There was a third target as well. For God's sake, who? Vice President Johnson. I believe this was an attempted coup, Mr. Wells. A coup? The president and vice president dead. The process of electing a new president can only be set in motion by the secretary of state. Seward. Yes. Who was stabbed upwards of a dozen times and left for dead. If these attacks had all succeeded, under current law, what happens? I have no earthly idea. No one does. The president, vice president, secretary of state, dead. There is no constitutional protocol for electing a new president. I believe this was a coup designed to upend the executive branch and throw us into crisis. And who, in your estimation, is responsible for this supposed coup? Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis is many things, Mr. Stanton, but a cold-blooded murderer is not one of them. Mr. Wells, the best way to uncover the truth is to find John Wilkes Booth and his conspirators as quickly as we can. Agreed. What can the Navy do to help? I need boats to patrol the Potomac, as many as you can spare. If Booth and his compatriots escape the city, they'll try to cross the river and flee to Virginia. We need to cut them off at the pass. Whatever you need from the Navy, it's yours. The same goes for me. I am at your disposal, Mr. Stanton. Gideon. Yes? I know I've been a thorn in your side in the past. A sword is closer to the mark. Yes. Well, thank you. For Mr. Lincoln. For Mr. Lincoln. Telegraph, April 15th, 1865. From the office of the War Department. The attacks, both at the theater and at Secretary Seward's home, took place at the same hour, thus showing a coordinated plan to assassinate Union leadership. Every street in Washington is to be patrolled. Every road out of Washington is to be strongly picketed. All trains and steamboats should be stopped immediately, and every other possible avenue of escape thoroughly guarded, in order, if possible, to arrest the assassins. Sincerely, Edwin M. Stanton, Secretary of War. Mr. Stanton. Mr. Hale, thank you for coming. You remember my daughter, Lucy? Yes, of course. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Miss Hale, your fiancé is on his way. Robert is coming here? Yes, any moment now. Now, perhaps you'd like to wait for Mr. Lincoln in the foyer. I'm sure he'd appreciate your company and your comfort. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. I'll leave you to your business. She's a lovely girl. I'm sorry for bringing her. No, no, it's fine. I couldn't bear the thought of leaving her alone. Not on a night like tonight. As I said, it's fine. How is the president? What's his condition? Well, his wound is mortal. Senator Hale. It's Ambassador Hale now. You know that. Assuming Johnson follows through on Lincoln's promise and confirms your appointment. When it comes to Lincoln's agenda, Andrew Johnson isn't likely to follow through on much of anything. Wouldn't you agree? Perhaps. What can I do for you, Edwin? I want to know what you think of him. Johnson. When he was sworn in as vice president a few weeks back, he was wallpapered drunk. Oh, I know. I was there. Fool could barely stand. 
He's a feckless, vile monster. A drunk, a womanizer, and a stammering buffoon, too. Don't forget Bigot. Indeed. He's entirely beneath the office of the presidency. Yep, come tomorrow, he'll have it. God help us. That man stands in opposition to everything you and I have fought for our entire careers. If there's one thing I've learned from my time serving under Mr. Lincoln, it's that the office of the presidency changes the men who occupy it. Not this one. Johnson the man is unscrupulous and vile, yes, but Johnson the president, we don't know who he's going to be, not yet. My father always said, when someone shows you who they really are, believe them. Believe Andrew Johnson, Edwin. Take him at his word. He'll try to destroy Lincoln's legacy first chance he gets. You may be right. All the more reason for you to stay in Washington. Even if Johnson does make good on Lincoln's promise, refuse the ambassadorship. Johnson will need good men in his orbit, John. Men who can help stave off his worser inclinations. So will I. I need you here for the fight to come, not kept away in the Spanish embassy. The people voted me out of the Senate, Edwin. I have no power. You have influence. You have more sway over the Republicans than anyone. Where you go, the party will follow. And where will I be leading them? When I was a boy, I swore an oath to my father. An eternal hostility to slavery and bigotry. I'm going to make good on that promise. I'm going to preserve Lincoln's legacy. But I can't do it alone. I need you and the rest of the Republicans standing with me, lockstep in solidarity. Consider it done. Thank you, John. What about you? What about me? You'll have to offer Johnson your resignation. Along with the rest of the cabinet, yes. And if he accepts? Much good you'll do the president's legacy deprived of your office. I suppose I'll have to do with Johnson what I did with Mr. Lincoln. Make myself indispensable. Easier said than done. Why do you say that? Johnson despises you. Feeling is mutual. Mr. Secretary. Marshal McPhail, why aren't you with Mr. Johnson? That's actually why I'm here, sir. The vice president is missing. He's missing! My men believe he escaped through the bedroom window moments ago. I, I ordered him to remain at home, and I ordered your men to keep him there, Marshal. I've launched a citywide search, sir. Find him, Marshal. I will not have this country waking up without a president. That was just a preview of 1865. You can hear the rest of the first two episodes now, along with exclusive interviews with the writers and producers of the show discussing the real history behind the podcast. New episodes debut weekly, only on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash 1865 and use promo code 1865 now for a free trial. And that's this week's show. Please take some time to rate as many of the Mutual Audio Network feeds as you would like on Apple Podcasts or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Check for us on Twitter and Facebook and all the usual places. And have a check at 1865 as it will shortly be out on Apple, Stitcher and all the other like podcast places. Until next week, join us in oblivion. Ooh, an apocalyptic prediction? Apocryphal at least. (laughs) See you next week, everyone. I'm Jack Ward. And I'm David Alt. Have a good day, everyone. Sonic Society is written and produced weekly by Jack J. Ward and David Alt, with original music by Sharon B. at SharonB.com. 
All features, interviews, and audio drama shorts are owned completely by their originators and provided to the Sonic Society by Creative Commons licensing. The Society itself originates from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Thanks for listening. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. Hey everyone, it's Mark from Leap Audio. I'm here to tell you about something really exciting. July 24 through 26 of 2020, Halifax, Nova Scotia, we are gathering together in the world's first international modern audio drama convention and family reunion. Inspired in part by the living, loving memory of our dear friend Bill Hallwake, we're bringing together writers, producers, actors, and our fans for workshops, seminars, and even live performances. So join us, won't you? Go to madcon.com. That's www.mad-con.com for more information. I hope to see you in Halifax in 2020. Governments throughout the world have been working around the clock to get more information about just how this event that we call the incident actually occurred. We're all just trying to have a nice family. What, what was that? We've recently discovered evidence that all of this, the incident, the pulse, word Nisha, was from a shadowy group that calls itself Cypher. We must maintain our power at all costs! The crisis is real. There's only one demographic who remained unaffected. Who? Kids.